I mean, it's well documented on this podcast that I didn't learn the backhand for my first seven years. Welcome to Clock or Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So today we're going to talk about freestyle onboarding or how to spread the jam. But before that, let's have a little story time with James. All right. So I have two stories. The first one, I hope I hope this story goes over well. It's kind of hard to tell the right way. But when we were working on the rankings and rating system, we were obviously texting back and forth a lot. And for some reason, at some point, I texted you something like, well, the women are not going to be very happy about this. But the problem was I didn't text that to you. I texted that to somebody at work. And <laughs> that's never a good thing. But normally you can at least send a follow-up text and say, hey, I'm sorry, that was for somebody else. And probably don't need to say anything else. Or maybe you can say, oh, we were planning a party or something. But when I try to explain the context for why I would write a text that says the women are not going to be happy about this, it only made things worse because I had to be like, <laughs> well, like we were ranking the women, you know, like we were <laughs> building a ranking system of women. And it was very hard to explain that there's a sport called freestyle frisbee and there's an open ranking and a women's ranking. And once you have to explain that much context to a missent text message, you pretty much lost the battle. Um, but for better or worse, the person whom I texted had the dignity to not bother responding to me. So, <laughs> so who, who knows what they thought I was talking about. But be careful who you're texting um, because without context, oof, it can sound, sound pretty bad. But my other story, which... Apparently, the same thing happened to you, and I want to know if you how you reacted when this happened to you. But I have Ilka Zimon in town in Durham. We're practicing for frisbeer, and we were doing some combination where I'm setting for her catch, and we were having that common problem that happens when you're building a routine. You're setting someone, and it's not working. And it's not always sure, like, is it the setter's fault, or is it the catcher's fault? <laughs> and... You do it over and over and over again and you're not sure who's going to say something first about whether it's going to work or why it isn't working. And at some point I just said, like, is there anything I can do differently about the set? Like, what can I do to make this better? And Ilka goes, can you just not set it perfectly? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what? She's like, yeah, like, it's too perfect. And it's like, Ilka, in all of my days of freestyle, no one has ever told me to set it worse to make them catch it. And she told me, because I just started laughing. She said, I told the same thing to Ryan when we were building a routine. And he also had no idea what to do. So do you remember her telling you that? I don't remember that, but I can imagine Ilka saying that. But I know what she means because I, I was able to figure it out in the end. I kind of know so, what you mean too. Like, But usually it happens to me where the set usually isn't perfect and then I get used to it. And then when they set me perfectly, I, I totally scrambles my brain and I screw <laughs> it up. It's like you get used to it a certain way and you can't adjust to the right way. For me, I think it's it's a misinterpretation. Like people think the perfect set is kind of like centered on the catch spot where you catch it. But I yeah. don't think it's, I think it's a little bit in front or behind based on the prep. So you want to set it where they would be if they took a couple prep steps and then set up so it's like the perfect set is like where i mean the perfect set in their brain may be 
I lift my leg up and it drops into the pocket. But really, you want it to, them to take two steps, get some momentum, and then it to fall in the pocket. So I totally agree with you, but I have two caveats. So one thing that I've actually been struggling with is with my new freestylers, I give them the, we'll call it, we'll keep calling it the perfect set that is right where they would catch it if there was no prep. And the reason I do that is because if you're learning a catch for the first time and you're a brand new freestyler, you don't really know how to do the prep. And if I set it two feet to the left of you, you don't even know what to do and you think I screwed up. (laughs) And so usually the best thing to do is to set it exactly where their hand is going to be so they have to do as little as possible so they can at least have the experience of putting their body in the right position and catching it. But I actually remember a jam recently where I was playing with Jake and I kept setting him that way and he kept dropping it over and over and over again. And in my head, I was like, how is he dropping these? I'm putting them... Like he doesn't even have to move. It's right in his hand. And then I kind of had to remind myself, oh, because that's not really how I should be setting him. I should be setting him so that he has to go get it. So I think you're definitely right about that. But it's kind of a little bit skill-based about like where someone is to know what they need and what they want. But usually you want it to be a little bit I don't like like part of this thing. Like I would, I would, I'm not trying to be self-congratulatory and say I'm giving Ilka's perfect sets. Clearly, they're not perfect if they don't work. Like <laughs> there's a semantic problem here. If the set's not working, it's not a perfect set. There's a problem with the set. But I do think there's something to be said about setting it in the way that kind of forces people to catch it the a better way. So like another extreme example is I always tell people that are practicing guidance like overset it, set it way further than you think. And that might force you to catch it with proper form. But if you set it to where it's really easy and you barely have to move to get it, it's probably not going to be very attractive. Yeah, guidance is such a good example because you catch guidance on the downward side. Yeah. You catch it like later than you think. And so putting it in the perfect place is not the right timing. Like there's you also need something, to be after. <laughs> there's something like personal too about it. And like I don't want to assume that we do it the right way and other people do it the wrong way, but I do think there's kind of like a standard setting discourse that like you, me, and very like traditional freestylers use. Like here's where you set it for different kinds of catches and it's pretty universal. But some people, particularly people who learn by themselves or lived in places where they weren't exposed to a lot of freestylers, sometimes have their own idiosyncratic setting language. And I actually think Ilka's kind of in that category. Like I've definitely had to learn more than usual where to set things for Ilka because she wants them in different kinds of places than you or I would want them. And like every time she tells me like, here's what I want to catch and here's where I want you to set me. I'm like, really? Like that's where you want me to put it? (laughs) And then you do it and she catches it. So she knows where it should be, but it's just different for her than other people. Every time I set you for Olivia, you tell me something ridiculous. And I'm like, why is it so high and so vertical? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it makes perfect sense because if it's high, it means you can get a full extension. And because it's inverted, it's easier to do vertically. But I hear you. I hear you. I mean, honestly, for me, I have most of my sets in the same place. And it's about moving my body around the set. But that's a topic for another day. (coughs) Okay. So with that, let's talk about onboarding freestylers or basically what you should do if someone comes up to you and wants to learn how to freestyle. And I know we've talked about this a little bit in one of our very first podcasts, but 
even then, I think I said that it was something we had a lot more to talk about. So before I talk about what I do, what do you think is the standard way that people try to teach new players? I think there's a couple ways. The first one is you have them try the delay out. You like give them a ton of spin and they usually lose control immediately and then they get bored and leave. And the other way is you do quick catch with them and they usually do a couple quick catches, get bored and leave. Okay. I agree. I think there's a common theory that you should teach new players speed flow or quick catch because it's more accessible and understandable. But I'm going to come here today to say that that is a terrible approach that doesn't work. And and all this, I'm going to be very defensive and indignant because I'm very proud that we have so many new players in Durham. And I think it's partially because I completely ignore everybody's advice and have adopted a completely different approach to bringing in new freestylers. And it's, so this technique is forged in science. You're using is, the scientific method. This is empirically tested, very high success rate method for teaching people how to freestyle. And it's a good day that you asked. It's a good day for you to ask to talk about this today because we had a brand new freestyler in Durham today, a young woman from New York who had never seen freestyle before or heard of it, who came up and she started the day knowing nothing about freestyle, ended the day with an eight to 10 second delay, a Rippin' Z chicken wing. Most shocking to me, a Rippin' Z regular backhand throw, a very serviceable brush, and a 100% success rate on the tip back. She had a little bit more trouble with getting it behind the back catch, but to me, she already has all the main tools. Like No matter where she is, upwind, downwind, side, she can brush it where she needs to brush it. She can delay it and she can pass it from the delay. Like she can give you a flat delay set or she could rim shoot it. So really like she was able to and joined a six person jam and did not interfere with the jam in any way. And we got there in less than six minutes. So from six minutes, she went from having never heard of freestyle before to being a full participant in a freestyle jam. And she is not alone. Basically, all the 10 to 12 people who freestyle in Durham that I've taught in the last three years were all like this. They all learned the basic skills in five to 10 minutes. So here's what I do. When someone comes wait, wait, up... I wanna, I've heard okay, this before, me. but let's say I'm coming up to you and I'm like, that's cool. What is that? What is your answer to that first? Like, we, you always start at the freestyle part, but what do you start? What is the conversation like before the freestyle part starts? So it comes up in different ways. So this time, the woman was a friend of another freestyler. And I had, I had actually assumed that they had talked about freestyle. And she said she wanted to come out. And she came out. So from her perspective, it was probably very weird. Because she walked out and Aiden said, hey, this is my friend. Like, she's interested. And I just went up to her. And without any conversation, I was like, okay, like, here's how to do the delay. And then I later realized that none of that had happened. That she had run into Aiden 10 minutes before the jam, asked him what he was up to. And he said, I'm going to go play Frisbee. And she thought he meant ultimate or like throw and catch. So okay. she had no context for what freestyle was and was probably very confused why some strange man just came up to her and started showing her these very obscure tricks. 
but she was really into it right away. I'm actually pretty optimistic that she'll come back out. Um, but a lot of times the way it happens at Duke, especially is we're playing there every day and I'll see people that kind of walk by day one, day two, day three, and eventually they'll come up and ask about it. And I just say, this is freestyle Frisbee. It's a super fun game. It's really hard to start, but once you get the hang of it, it's incredible. And especially now that I have more players, I can point to them and be like, he's been playing for three months and you can see how good he is already. And like, if you like doing this, you should really stick with it because it's really rewarding. And most people are like, cool, I want to try it. And the very first thing I do is show them how to do the delay. So that's like my number one, I will, I am ready to die on this hill. I teach them the delay. I do not care about quick catch. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about teaching them fancy throws. I teach them the delay. And I have a few reasons for this. One, it's the most unique thing that we're doing that catches the eye of a person walking by. They've seen throws. They've seen catches. They've never seen the nail delay until they see us freestyling. And I'd say half the time when people come up to me, they ask me, how do you spin it on your finger? So I show them. I don't hide the ball. I don't say, well, in three months, I'll teach you how to do that. I say, you want to learn how to spin it on your finger? I will teach you right now. The other reason I do it, and this thing I can't emphasize enough, we as experienced freestylers forget that the nail delay is super fun. It is super, super fun. It is extremely satisfying. And we think it's boring because we've done it for a long time. But for a new player, it's awesome. So once you're going to show someone the delay, how do I do it? So before I give them the disc, before I do anything, I say, hold your arm out in front of you with your palm face up, curl your fingers in, but leave your index and your middle finger above your other fingers, but keep them somewhat parallel to the ground so that it hits your fingernail and not your skin. So some of this is going to be hard to do on the podcast, but just kind of imagine putting your hand in the basic nail delay position and like making sure someone's hand is in that position before you give them the disc. And then I say, and this is probably the most important thing I say, I say, I'm going to throw it to myself. I'm going to hand it off to you. And when I do, you are going to cushion it. So when it starts to reach your hand, bring your hand down with the disc so that it comes to a soft resting position on your hand. That's the number one thing that people who've never freestyled don't understand. They want to attack the disc and take their hand towards it and apply pressure to the disc. But as soon as you apply pressure to the disc, you're going to alter its trajectory and it's going to lose its flat angle and try to do something funny. But if they cushion it, it'll just keep that flat angle. And usually just in the act of cushioning it, it will force them to delay accidentally for even a couple of seconds. <laughs> I also, in, like after this, I will give them a few self-sets. And honestly, like the woman today had a five or six, six second delay first try. No problem. Like it's possible. I'd say... 30% of the people I show the delay have a pretty long delay their first try. And some of this, and I don't know, like it's hard for me to like sort of estimate this. So I, I don't want to be misleading about it. And sorry to be self-congratulatory, but obviously I am exceptionally good at handing off a Frisbee for someone else to delay. <laughs> it seems like something that would be easy for an experienced player but one thing that happens a lot that I always find a little bit funny and I usually laugh to myself when I see it happen 
is sometimes my new freestylers, even the ones who've been playing three years, will try to show someone how to do the delay and it does not go well. <laughs> and I think in their head, they're like, I know how to delay. I see James do this all the time. <laughs> and they throw it up to themselves and they hand it off to the person and it doesn't work. And it's because I can throw more spin most of the time. And then just the act, like learning how to pass it off to somebody in a way that makes it almost impossible for them not to delay it just takes time. Like it's, it's hard, Flat right? sets are hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's super hard. And like, you can't just let them take it off your hand. Like you really have to give it like this inch and a half lift so they can see it go up and you have to put it like right above their hand in a certain way. There's definitely a very particular way you need to do it. But if you're able to master this, again, I'd say like 30% of the time people can delay it immediately, which is incredibly rewarding for them because it's not easy to do, but they can get that feeling of, oh, I did it right. But with that said, it doesn't always work out perfectly. And sometimes I have to add extra instructions. And here's where it's a little more experimental. You have to try things and some, some of them will work, some of them won't. Sometimes you'll give a piece of advice and you'll have to say, never mind, ignore that. That's not working. Let's try something else. But I'd say the main couple things I tell people when they're struggling with a delay, I say, you know, basically keep your wrist, hand, and forearm position locked and have all your movement in your shoulder. So a lot of people start like moving their fingers and moving their wrist and getting really loosey-goosey. But if you watch yourself when you do the delay, your hand, arm, wrist, fingers are, you know, like a piece of steel. They like really don't move very much and it's all in the wrist to keep the movement. So I tell people that that helps a lot. Some people really struggle to keep their hands bent so that it's on the fingernail. So a lot of times I really have to stress for people like you must keep your fingers bent. They want to like point their finger up in the sky. And I just say like, do not do that. Just have faith. I say this a lot to players, have faith, like just keep your fingers in that position and it, and it will hold. Another thing is I will say if people are still struggling, I tell them about the circles. I say like if it's clockwise, make clockwise circles. But a lot of times I won't say that unless it's necessary because for some people, I think that throws them off. They make like really big okay. circles or they make like, I think if you watch yourself do the delay, your circles aren't rhythmic. They're very random. And if you tell people to make circles consciously, it usually isn't quite right. Now, the last thing I do, which I think can help also, is I show them, and by the way, when I teach someone the delay, I show them always with my real fingernail. So even though I'll have a nail on, I will usually show them. I usually have short nails. So I'll be like, here's my nail. Look how short it is. I can do it. So like, don't worry about how your nails are. It's almost always possible. It's very rare that someone's nails are truly too short to do it. Um, but the last thing I'll do, which can help, and it's also a good middle step for people who are getting it, is I show them how if you're doing it right, once you lose the center, let the disc fall if it's clock to the right side of your body and down and it will stay in the rim. And I show them that like I delay it in the center. And then when it starts to process down, I just follow the disc with it and let it just ride the rim. And I say, let that happen. So you're going to lose the disc after a certain point, let it happen and just try to hold it in the rim. And I'll even show them how, like if they just move their body with it, it'll keep that same angle. And I say like, don't worry about what happens after just do that. Cause a lot of people, they start like tipping it and like, 
throwing their hands up <laughs> when they start to lose the delay. But it's good to start early on just staying very relaxed and letting the disc go into that natural angle. And then, of course, obviously, that is the sacred angle for everything. And once they can do that, I say, okay, now once you let it go down into your right, move your arm back up into the left. And that's how you can do a rim pass to somebody else. And most people can get that very quickly. The woman today, no problem doing rim passes after we had played for 20 minutes. Okay, so that's the delay. That probably takes between two and 10 minutes. And once they get one good one, a lot of times I'm like, great, let's move on. Especially if it takes a little bit longer. But if they get it pretty quick, let's like, let's get five to 10 down. And then I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I'll usually say that I'll be like, we're going to do five or 10 of these and then we'll move on. Because I think having an endpoint can be helpful for people. yeah. Yeah. Especially if like, you're not sure how interested they are, because it can start to venture into the awkward territory when they're like, oh, I told this guy he was doing cool frisbee stuff. And now he's sitting here how long is he going to be teaching me? Like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> so I usually like, you know, you have to gauge whether they really are interested, but I'm usually like, like, we'll do these things. And if you want to join, you're, you're free. So we'll do like 10 delays. No problem. The next thing we move to is a lot of times the tip back. So this is where I kind of explain the wind. I'm like, the wind's coming from there. You should stand upwind. I'm going to stand downwind. And I just say, I'm going to throw it to you. And I usually like hold the disc in the orientation it's going to be. And I say, the disc is going to look like this. And you're going to take your five fingers and you're just going to tip it back to the center. And then I'll kind of like throw it to myself at that angle and I'll tip it back so they can see it. And I would say 97% of people get this right immediately. It's <laughs> like, I, and I just, I'll either throw it to them and they'll tip it back to me because I'll throw out that like angle you need to do the tip back. But if it's windier or like they don't seem like they're as coordinated to make sure they have a really perfect one, I'll self-set it take it in the rim and give them like a nice perfect rim set for them to brush back. It's like if you're not as confident in throwing it in the right spot, you can use uh, like a left-handed clock rim shoot to get that nice angle and they can tip it back. So it's like, great, now they know how to tip it back. Next, I show them how to brush it. So I'm like, all right, we're going to switch. Now I'm upwind, you're downwind. I show them the orientation. Like the disc is going to look like this now and you're going to brush it here. And I basically say, I show them like just holding the disc I just kind of like show them the movement in my hand and I say, you're focused on hitting it side to side. Don't worry about pushing it towards me. That's going to happen on its own. And sometimes I'll say like, you basically hit it around five o'clock, but you follow through to six or seven, but you're pretty much just hitting it here. Don't worry about hitting it too hard. And then I, this one, I almost always throw to myself, delay it for a second, give them that really easy set with my left hand and let them brush it. And I would say 75% of the time, they can brush it perfectly right away. Still how with me? many, like how long do you spend? Because brushing is the first one that hurts of all of the... You, because they get it, even I say 75% of the time, they get it right the first time. 99% of the time, they get it right in the first three or four times. So once they brush it correctly three or four times, which usually takes 45 seconds, I'm like, great, moving on. It's like the delay I spend more time with because that's more of an incremental thing. It's like you need a lot of time doing the delay to learn it. But like the brushing and the tip backs come more naturally and they're a little bit easier. So once you do like three or four brushes, I'm like, awesome, moving on. Then depending on how interested they are or how much time they seem to have, 
I either do their first catch and I show them how to catch it behind the back. And I just say, same thing, like, here's the orientation. It's the same orientation you saw with the brush. And I say, I'm going to be upwind, you're going to be downwind. And when I set it to you, you're going to start out with your chest to the wind. So I think of it as perpendicular to the wind. And when I set it to you, watch the disc in the air coming towards you. And then I, uh, this is like too complicated to explain in the podcast. But I basically say like, you're going to step forward. You're going to pivot so that you're parallel to the wind. So that you have a window behind your back. I show them how to hold their hand. And I say, make your hand really big and just clamp down on it. Because by the way, like a lot of people, that's not obvious to them what their hand's supposed to be doing. But I kind of say like, your palm is up, your thumb is out, and you're going to clamp your thumb down on your other fingers. And I would say maybe like 50% of people catch their first behind the back. But some people definitely have a little more trouble with it. Like the woman today had a little bit more trouble with the behind the back. So we probably tried like 30 or 40, which sounds like a lot, but that's probably a minute and a half. And I was kind of like, you know what? That's fine. We'll move on. Now, if I don't do the behind the back, sometimes I also show them the kick. Like if they seem sort of coordinated and like they have played sports before, right after I would show them brushing, I'll show them how to kick. And it's the same thing. Like it's just like a brush, but with your foot. And I explain kind of like you point your toe and you're going to kick it in the same spot and think about side to side. And I have a question. Hit me, hit me. Why is the catch so far into the process? Like it's the fifth thing that seems very counter to normal, what people normally do, which is like the second thing. So there's a couple things, right? I think as freestylers, experienced freestylers, we try to impose our values on new players. And so we focus on things that we care about as pros, like catching. But New players, it's almost like the beginning of the universe has different rules than later in the universe. (laughs) So like we're in Big Bang rule era when people are new. And it's sort of like catching is the last thing I need you to worry about when you're a new player. Like I want you to just focus on skills that will facilitate the jam. Because even though catching can make a big difference in the jam and like we've talked a lot about how catching early, catching often in the Jay Coleman motto is a really great way to be a better freestyler when you're new. But it's not necessarily the best way to learn. So like if you're really new, if you're really good at catching, I don't want you to catch it. Because if every time I said it to you, you catch it, you're not learning the more important skills that you need to learn. So I'm almost happy that they're trying to do the other stuff. Like I want you to work on brushing kicking, whatever. And then there's one other thing that is also really important to this whole analysis, which is what can they do on their own easily without me? And catching is the easiest thing they can do. They probably will have trouble brushing on their own. They'll probably have trouble kicking on their own. They'll obviously have trouble delaying on their own because they're not going to throw it to themselves. Like everything else, they basically need me to set them up to work on. But a behind-the-back catch, I can show them how to do it and say, if you ever want to practice this, you already are going to be good enough to throw it up and try it. It's like that's a really big factor of like, I'm not going to spend my time on that thing because that's going to be really easy for you to figure out later. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so the last thing I do is I teach them how to throw it. And 99 times out of 100, I do the chicken wing. And Ilka was actually questioning my judgment here when we were leaving. And I think maybe she thought I was showing her the chicken wing because she was a woman 
And at least like historically, like women have used that throw more than men, which never really made sense to me because I do think the chicken wing is the one of the highest spin throws that you can possibly do. But it's Mm -hmm. like it's like actually like a big power throw, but it's a little bit like less versatile. Yeah, versatile. Like you can only really throw like certain angles and it's a little bit harder to pull off. But I told her like, no, I teach everyone the chicken wing. And the reason I do that is because I think everyone can chicken wing on the first day. But some people take months to learn the backhand. Like even my best freestylers took weeks or months to get the backhand down in any way that was useful. But there's something about the chicken wing that mechanically it's very simple because it uses all big muscles. And it's kind of like I can wind them up like a toy and just be like, do this, do this, do this, and now explode. And then if they just Mm. explode and they unwind, the throw is going to be great. So it's like there's not a lot of finesse in it. They don't have to like think a lot or understand the angles. It's just like do what I tell you to do and it will work. So here's what I tell them to do. And I'll like assume they've never held the frizz before. I say, take your hand like you're shaking somebody's hand and then take the disc and put your hand on it like this. Because there's like the way you shake someone's hand is like you're kind of in the right position you need to hold the disc. And then usually I have to check the bottom and say, no, like make sure your fingers are curled in because some people will do like the Benno grip where their fingers are, are out straight. It's like curl in that grip, put your thumb kind of close to the ridge on top. And then I tell them squeeze hard, make sure there's a little indent. And then I say, okay, so stand 30 feet, whatever, 10 meters away from me. And I tell them if I'll, I'll kind of stand perpendicular to them and I'll say like, you know, have your right foot in front of your left foot so that you're, like your feet and my body would make like a pair perpendicular line. It's like hard to describe. It's like the most simple, obvious thing, but it's hard to describe in words. And then I say, hold out the disc to me, like you're handing it to me from 10 meters away. So your arm is outstretched and you're holding it out. And then I say, okay, curl your hand in. And like most of the time they get it right, but sometimes I have to come up and like show them what I mean. But you know, it's like take the disc, First, curl it in so the disc is like basically touching your forearm and then just keep curling, keep curling. And I show them how like your knuckle is in your armpit and your elbow is up in the air. And it's always funny because a lot of times they don't quite do it enough. And then when I show them what I mean, they always go like, oh, whoa, like they kind of recoil because it's such an awkward way to put your body. But here's kind of the unwinding thing. Like it's so unnatural to do it. But like once you're in the chicken wing position, there's nothing else to do but throw it perfectly so i wind them up like that and i tell them point the elbow at your partner but aim it like three feet above their head keep that elbow up the elbow has to be up the whole time and then i show them just twist at your hips 90 degrees and then i say explode and i always say don't worry about where it goes just throw it hard and again maybe like 50 percent of people like right away they're throwing 800 rpm perfectly flat perfectly good throw there are some people who really struggle to truly explode. Like they just can't get their body to throw it hard. That can be a little bit of a struggle, but I, the backhand's not going to be any easier for them. The chicken wing is still their best option. And then some people manage to throw kind of like scary angles, but usually I can find a way to correct that. So like maybe I'll make them lean forward or lean back and that can fix their angle. But the nice thing about the chicken wing is they can throw spin right away and they can contribute to the jam. Because it's this really tricky thing I've noticed with new players that 
I think we don't always understand as experienced players, which is if you're not comfortable with your throw, you become very cautious in the jam because you're so afraid that you're going to mess up and have to throw it. So like you're, <laughs> you're afraid to catch it because you have to throw it and you're afraid to try to do something because if you know, like if you hit it and it hits the ground, you're going to feel obligated to go pick it up and throw it. So I don't want you to feel insecure about your throw. So if I try to show you like the best throw and teach you a backhand, but it's going to take you six weeks, that means for six weeks, you're really uncomfortable because you feel like you can't throw well enough for people to use it. But if you throw me a ribbon chicken wing and it's 20 feet away, but I have time to get it, but then I have 850 RPM and I do an awesome trick, you feel good about it because you know that you made that throw and it was good enough for me to do tricks with. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I will say, though, the woman today, and I truly, without exaggeration, she figured out the backhand. Like, she was asking about it. She was really focused. And she asked me about the backhand. And I showed it to her. And she got it right away. And I told her, I was like, look, like... Prodigy. Everyone comes here, and it's kind of like what we talked before. Everyone's better. We always freak out, like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're delaying it already. And I'm like, guys, all of you delayed it on the first day. Everyone who comes here, that's not a big deal. Like we all do it. But then when she did that, I was like, okay, I've never seen that before. (laughs) I pretty (laughs) much never see someone get the backhand right away. And I'm curious, like maybe there is a way to teach the backhand where people can do it on the first day. Because I think it's surprising to people who will listen to this that I can get people to do all that other stuff on the first day. So it wouldn't shock me that there's some way of explaining it that makes people able to throw it. But in my experience most people really struggle to get the backhand down. Yeah. It's, I didn't even learn the backhand for like nine months. when I, I mean, it's well documented on this podcast that I didn't learn the backhand for my first seven years. So <laughs> it's, it's tricky. And that might be part of why I don't teach you all. But now, like just to kind of put a bow on it, think about it. If someone has enough skill to throw it, brush it, tip it back and catch it, they have all the tools. Like They have an answer to basically every question. If they're upwind, they can tap it back. If they're downwind, they can brush it or catch it. If they have the disc, they can throw it. So what's really nice about it is I can welcome someone to the jam after five or 10 minutes. It's not the old way where it's like in six to nine months, when you come back, you'll be able <laughs> to jam with us. It's no, like you can jam today and you'll have fun and actually, one thing the woman doing was say, I remember her name, by the way, but I'm just not going to say her name because I don't know if she'll keep coming out and I don't want to put some random person's name out who I don't know. Uh, she did something really and also impressive that I've never seen anyone else quite do, which is she was trying to figure out where to stand in the jam. So like she was trying to go on the brush runs with us and like really like being very proactive about where she stood in a way that even my much more experienced freestylers don't do. So like all in all, I was super impressed. And I'm a we're talking about what out. to look for for future potential. It sounds like prodigy. Yeah, I mean, makings of a prodigy. She had all the skills, but even more than the fact that she was getting it down is she was asking all the right things. I mean, part of my whole philosophy here is people want to do what you're doing, and you should let them do it, and don't give them like the training wheels. It's like if you want to learn that, I'll teach it to you, and. Like, for instance, I showed her the chicken wing and she was crushing the chicken wing, but she was like, I want to learn that. Like, I want to learn your backhand because that's what you're doing. And there was like a couple of times where she was just sort of like, you guys are doing it this way. I want to do that. 
So for instance, like I didn't give her nails. She actually had really good nails for it. Um, but not surprisingly, and it happened to me too today, like her nails got a little beat up from playing for 45 minutes. And when we were leaving, she was like, I really like the nails because my nails got banged up and I want them like I want to be able to do it next time. <laughs> and I was like, sure, like here's a bunch of nails. But one other detail in all this, which I can't emphasize enough, and I think it's probably the most important thing of everything. When she walked on the field and Aiden was like, hey, this person's interested. I walked out of the gym. I went up to her. I gave her a frisbee and I spent the next 10 minutes with her. And then I brought her in the jam. And when we were jamming, I put 100% of my focus on her. So when I got the disc, I gave her a delay. I gave her a, a handoff. I, when I had the disc, I would say, hey, brush it. And before I set it to her, I would kind of do the motion to remind her what brushing was. And I would set it to her so she could brush it. But once she walked on the jam field, the rest of my day was about her. And... I think that's a big part of spreading the jam that's missing. Like everyone talks about how important it is to spread the jam, but you have to be ready to give up your jam if you really want to spread the jam. Because if you talk to them for 30 seconds and then go back to jamming, that person is never coming back. But if you give them what they need, which is both in terms of material and your time and attention, you have a fighting chance that they'll come back. I still probably only have a five to 10% success rate. Like if there was no other knowledge, there's a 90% chance this woman will never come back today. And just think of the hundreds of people I've given hours of my life to <laughs> that will never come back and freestyle again. But it is worth it because I also have the 10 to 15 people that have kept coming back. And those are the future freestylers that will take over the sport. So, you know, like sometimes I think I'm almost like mean about spreading the jam because like anything, when you do something, everyone wants to tell you their opinion about it and how like I should be doing my job of spreading the jam. And I get very defensive because I don't know if there's anyone active in the sport right now who has created more freestylers than I have. And most of the people who give me advice have no freestylers. They've ever created some sort of like, I really don't care what you have to say about spreading the jam because until you bring me five new players you've made, I'm not so sure I value your opinion on the matter i know you just have the community to back you up yeah and and but again like the other thing too is like everyone talks about it but no one wants to put in the time like mm -hmm. it's expensive in terms of money and time like i've given away at this point like probably 500 to a thousand discs like do you think that's probably accurate yeah i think so how many blue discs do you have left so i mean uh, we should just call Bill Wright because Bill Wright can tell you that I order like 150 discs every year and there's no way I use more than like five discs a year. So most of those are in someone else's hands. And I even have like weird stories where like earlier this year I was jamming and some guy came up and was asking about freestyle and he's like, what kind of disc do you use? Like, does my disc work? And he pulls out like this beautiful 2016 yellow B disc. And I'm like, that's my disc. <laughs> like a hundred percent. I gave that to someone who gave it to you. And I basically told him that. And we worked it out like the string of like four people who that <laughs> disc had traveled from. And it was a hundred percent like a disc that I had given out. But I think all the time I'm like some random place and I see people throwing a disc. And I'm like, that's my disc. I gave that away five years ago. So you just it's painful sometimes, but you got to do it. But the time is the biggest thing. 
And I think it's probably harder for newer players because their motives are different. Like for me and you, it's not such a big deal to miss the jam to teach him how to play. Mm-hmm. Like if anything, a lot of times I'm relieved because like half the time these days I'm jamming just because I want to make sure the new players have like a good experience. So I'm like relieved that I can step out from the jam for a little bit. But it's hard and you're going to miss more often than you hit and you just have to suck it up. Okay. Do you have any, that was a lot of what to do. Do you have any don't do things? I don't know. Like, I can some, think of one. Go start. You start. told me the, when someone starts delaying, you hold their finger and delay for them. Oh yeah. Well, I have two big ones. So that's for sure. Don't, you know, I try to avoid touching people, first of all, just as a general rule. Like, I do not want to be putting my hands on people. The only time I ever, like, get close to that is on the chicken wing. Sometimes I'll be like, I'll even be like, hey, like, sorry, may I? And I'll, I usually just touch the disc to, like, kind of, like, torque it in the way that it needs to be torqued because they don't often get it. But I really try to avoid touching people because some people don't want to be touched. Don't touch strangers. I think that's obvious, but... I see it all the time. Like someone's trying to learn how to delay and people are like grabbing their arm and like swinging it around forcefully and you're not teaching them. They're not learning and you're probably making them uncomfortable. So don't touch them. Second, I really strongly believe don't teach them how to delay it above their head. There's this obsession and mainstream idea. I don't know where it started that you should teach people how to delay it above their head because they can see what their finger is doing and watch how the disc is spinning. But here's why I don't agree with that. First, it's hard to delay it that way. I think it's harder to delay it that way than the normal way. So it's just like a weird way to delay it. Second, if you imagine when you put your finger above your head, it's more likely that you're going to point your finger up and it's going to be your skin, not the nail touching the disc, right? So the whole point of the nail delay, the thing I emphasize so much is your fingers have to be bent so that the nail is parallel to the ground so that it's the nail that touches the disc, not your skin. But it's really hard to keep that nail orientation if you're doing it above your head so you're so much more likely to drag your skin across the disc and in the delay well another aspect of that is we what we do with our hands to correct the disc is subconscious you can't just watch what someone's doing and emulate it like i said it's kind of random how we move the hand it's something that you will just learn from trial and error not from watching it So I don't actually think it's that helpful to be able to see what your hand's doing from the bottom. It's also a weird mirror problem, right? Like you're seeing the bottom of the disc when you're doing it above (laughs) your head. But when you're actually going to be doing the delay, you're going to be looking from the top. So there's like a kind of weird like spatial reasoning thing there that I think can be tricky for people. Also, when they get throws, most of the throws are going to be more like chest level and they're going to need to cushion them. It's a lot harder to cushion it when it's above your head because your arms stretched out really high. It's a lot easier to cushion it more in the natural body position when your hands are down low. So I think that's more natural. It also fits within my theory of do what we do. Like if I show them this geeky looking above the head delay, they're like, what is this? I want to learn to do what everyone else is doing. I feel silly. I don't know. I can think of like five more reasons, but I don't want to beat that to the ground. I really strongly believe you should teach them the way we do it. If you care a lot about them being able to see what their fingers are doing, pick up a clear disc. Like just take a yellow translucent disc. Usually you can see your fingers underneath it anyways if you really think that's important. So that's fine. Um, Other like random don'ts. This one's more like 
philosophic, but I try not to assume someone's interest level. And let me think of the best way to explain it. It kind of means a couple of things. One is I give everyone a fair shot. Like if you come up and ask me about it, even if I think like there's no way this person's ever going to play again because of whatever, like the way they're dressed or they don't look athletic or they look like they're too cool for this, whatever I may think about them just in that like ugly part of your brain that immediately prejudges somebody, throw that out the window and give them as much time as they want. Now still pick up on social cues, right? Like obviously if someone clearly isn't interested after a while, leave them alone. You know, don't force someone to learn how to play. So you have to use your judgment here. But as an initial matter, sometimes someone walks up to you and I just think like there's no way this person's really interested. But I give them a chance and most of the time I'm right. They're not that interested. But sometimes I'm wrong and they keep coming back. And it's worth it if they come back one time, even if the other 10 times you wasted your time. Yeah, that's a good one. That's probably even good for most life experiences. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's generally good advice. Like, I don't want to give any specific examples because it would be weird to be like, this freestyler I thought would never come back. But <laughs> like, I'll actually give one with Will. Like, Will seemed just disinterested. Like, he wasn't like smiling very much. He didn't seem to like be having a really good time, but he was doing it. And I was like, I don't know what he's really feeling. Like I actually like was talking with Ilka about this day. Like I read this whole book about how bad we are reading other people's emotions and feelings. It's just like something that humans think they're good at doing, but we're really bad at it. So I'm just like, I have no idea. He might be having the time of his life. So I'm like, I'm just going to keep playing with him. If he keeps wanting to come out, he'll keep coming out. And that's what he did. And now he's an amazing freestyler. But if I had just been like, oh, he's not smiling and he doesn't seem to be having fun and ignored him, then we would have one less amazing freestyler in the world. Cool. Are there any, any other... like, well, oh, is there anything like you think of, or like you do, or like you think, like, is there anything I said that you think like that can't be right? Or I wonder if that's really accurate. No, it's more like you have the most success. So I'm just accepting everything you're saying as truth at the moment. Like I haven't. Like, I wish I could go out to the college near my house and train up a bunch of people, but I, like, it's hard. Like, for what, like, that you said about the time, like, I just don't have the time to do that. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, I'm like kind of passing judgment on all the people who talk about spreading the jam, but don't spread the jam. I get that a lot of people are never going to have the time or money to do it. I mean, that's fine. If you don't have time, you don't have money. I get it. Like, that's part of it. Um, there's also an aspect of what you just said that it's hard to, that's hard to do too. It's hard. It's embarrassing. Like I, when there was no freestylers and even now, like my main strategy is I go out during orientation week of the school. And so everyone there is a freshman and they're starting their new lives and their new routines. And so if I can get them early and put freestyle into their routine, they're more likely to keep it up. That's a big factor. But because it's orientation week, I don't have any freestyles there. It's just me. So I have to go out and play by myself for a week and hope that people get interested in playing. And that is so hard. It is so hard to do because you feel so silly just in a field by yourself. The age difference between me and the students is getting bigger and bigger. I'm basically just like some weird grown-up doing this solo activity that's super odd and the conditions might be bad. I'm just dropping it over and over again. And I don't know if I've told this story yet here, but if I have, sorry. One year, you know, I went out every day for seven days, played and played and played. And sure, people came up and were like, that's cool. But no one stopped to learn how to play. And I just thought, this is so embarrassing. This is such a waste. 
And I think it was the year right after like the main COVID year. And I thought, you know, maybe last year was a fluke because it was COVID and I'm not going to be able to get new players anymore. And then on day eight, just the floodgates opened and so many people came up and they all said the same thing. They were like, I've seen you out here every day. It's so cool. I'm so interested in doing it. Will you teach me how to do it? And it was just like a classic story of attrition. It's just the first seven days were not enough. (laughs) But on day eight, just from my persistence alone, they were like, okay, cool. I want to ask about this. And yeah, I mean, we're doing really well. Like I, I want to be careful though. Like I'm actually so glad when people like Ilka come, like I want people to come so they can see it because I still worry. And this goes a little bit to what I've talked about before about being like so scared about security. Like I'm just like a person who's always afraid that I'm not safe and won't have enough. I like worry that if I got hit by a bus tomorrow or like suddenly had triplets on the way or like my job blew up and I didn't have time to do this anymore. Like would the freestyle scene here survive? I don't know. I think this year is the first time I've been willing to believe that I could stop now and it would probably at least survive for the next five or 10 years. Like, I don't know how much it would grow. It might grow, but I think it would survive, which is a, a great place to be, but it wouldn't shock me at all if it died out. Like if there wasn't someone like me pushing it really hard, it could die. So there's times where I'm like, you know, I'm talking a big game about spreading the jam, but if my life circumstances change and I can't keep doing this anymore, will it die out? And everyone's going to be like, where are all your jammers? So I'm glad that like Ilka's come. We've been to two jams and she's jammed with like eight or nine people. And I'm like, there they are. They exist. They're real. They played really well. And they're out there. Like those freestylers are freestylers for the rest of their life, even if they don't play every day the rest of their life. Yeah. It's like the start of the butterfly effect, but you don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, one that's of them what, could be, they could, like, you're, this is like the Duke method you just described or the James Wiseman method. Like, one of them could figure out the one that actually makes us go mainstream. That's true. I mean, one thing I was going to say when you said, like, you're just trusting me because it's working for me. I acknowledge that there's probably better ways to do this, but this is by far the best way I have found because I tried all the other ways before and I never really had any luck with it. And it's kind of just like boredom, just trying different ways to teach people. And then suddenly it started working and there might be other reasons it's working, but it's working. So I'm going to keep doing it. And if people come up with better ways, I'm, I'm happy to hear them. But going off of what you just said, I'm like constantly looking for my replacement in like so many different ways. Like we talk about this a lot, but I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm waiting for someone to just be way better than me at freestyle who could just take over and I can just be like, all right, I'm done. Like it's their sport now. (laughs) I'm out. And it hasn't totally happened yet. But more importantly, I'm waiting for, I'm waiting to replace myself in terms of sort of like freestyle community service. Like as soon as someone like will, can do everything that I do now to keep the Duke freestyle scene going, then I'll go to sleep peacefully at night knowing that everything's taken care of. And actually Will has made huge strides in that. So for instance, before this year, whenever I went on vacation or was gone, I was so stressed because I knew there was no jam happening. And I was constantly worried that like this new player is going to want to jam this week. There's going to be no jam because I'm not there. And they're going to move on to something else. And we lost a freestyler because I had to go to this work conference. 
or whatever, like just like the guilt around losing a freestyler because I wasn't there. But now Will will be there. Like Will will make sure that there are jams when I'm gone and Ray now too. And even some of this juniors will by committee kind of do my job. But will Will like at what point will Will be able to buy 300 discs a year and give them away? And like there's so many other things that like I do that he'll have to do and get better at. And I think he's capable of doing it. But this makes me sound so self-congratulatory. But right now we need more than one. Like there's we need like five to ten people to really replace what I'm doing right now. God, it sounds so bad. I get it. But like <laughs> it's really hard to do all these different things. You need so many different things. And a lot of it's luck. Like some of it's as dumb as like having the money to afford all the discs having a job that's flexible enough to go out there. Like all of these things don't happen to everybody and you kind of need all of them or enough people to cover them all to make it work. But at least all your, your successors have like grown up in this ecosystem that works. And I feel that's like a huge advantage for them and for advance advancement. That's true. And it actually makes me kind of want to shout out some people in my upbringing And I'll say like I've taken it to a much bigger extreme, but like little things like Roger Meyer. Well, I'll go even further back. When I was interested in freestyle, Dan Yarnell gave me a brand new disc and nails. And like, obviously I've kept that with me and that's what I do. I give people a new disc, nails, but I go further. I give them glue. I give them slick. I give them a bag. Like I give them literally everything they need to freestyle. I give them a rag. So... But like that comes from Dan. Like Dan did that for me and I'm passing that on and taking it to another level. Roger Meyer, he gave me a disc early on too. And he's like, everyone gets one for free. I do the same thing except everyone. I say, while you're at Duke, everything you need is free. I Like <laughs> whatever you need while you're a Duke student, I will provide no charge. Paul Kenny also like gave me discs, took care of me, like made sure I had a place to stay I'm pretty sure a couple times he even like subsidized my travel to make sure I could get somewhere. Like did all these like grown up things taking care of poor college kids that I try to do too. It's sort of like when we do Virginia, you and I rent out the house and it's free for all the Duke students who want to stay there. And obviously not everyone can do that. I get it. But like if you can do it, you should because, you know, this is a life philosophy thing. But I think and I'm, I can be so bad about this too. So I get it. But like sometimes we're so focused on everyone paying their fair share and like keeping some kind of equality or like you're getting the same thing I'm getting and you have to pay for it. And sometimes you have to put all that aside and be like, what's the value of this to me? Is it worth the money? Yes, I'm going to do it. So mm-hmm. the Virginia is a great example. Like should the Duke students pay to have a room in our house in Virginia? Probably can they afford it? Probably. Their parents are probably rich for all I know, or like maybe they have a summer job, whatever. It's not that much money. But like, is it worth it to me to spend an extra hundred dollars to make it really easy for five new jammers to go to this tournament? Yes. Like money well spent way better than Mm -hmm. the hundred dollars I spend on whatever dumb things I spend money on. So like, if you can afford to do it, like don't let your, whatever your like human sense of fairness, get in the way of doing something you want. And also to give the shout out, like that's something I learned from Ted and Chrissy. Like Ted and Chrissy fly people out to New York for All-Star Thursday. It's like a super generous thing they do. And I think one way of looking at that is something like 
they're doing this big favor to the community, which they are. I don't want to undersell that, but I want to also paint it in a different light, which is how I think of it and how it's inspired me, which is like, I would fly to go see you, Ryan. But like, if I wanted you to come see me, what's the difference between me paying for you to come see me? I'm doing it for me. I want you to be in Durham. If me paying for you is what allows you to come here and be with me, that's worth it for me. And like, that's a good benefit for for everyone involved. But like, there's something like we don't do that very much. Like we spend lots of money on ourselves to go do things, but like we don't like spending money on other people. And like, if you thought about it in pure, rational, economic, scientific view, it's sort of like, is what's the utility to you? Is it high? Then do it. Like, mm-hmm. again, I know not all, most people, a lot of people in our sport don't have the means to do anything like this, but I guess I'm just trying to say if you do like, think about it like is it worth it to you to fly someone out to come jam with you do it like is it worth it for you to maybe have a new jammer like buy them some discs like help them get to a tournament whatever whatever makes sense and you know this is a good time to shout out katie gimma's new year new champion initiative like donate some money to get new freestylers to that tournament like it's a great way to just do a tiny little bit to pass it on and you will have a better experience at that tournament because there's more players there than if you didn't put that extra money in. Mm-hmm. Also having just like more new players there, it's like a new face looking at you. It makes a big difference. Yeah, I mean, the sport will die if we don't push it. You know, it's like, that's what I think about a lot when like the, this is again, this less true now, but like back when it was harder to be like, oh, I'm going to miss this jam so that I can teach this new player. It's like, cool, but you're not going to have a jam in 10 years unless you teach this new player. So sometimes you just have to have that long-term thinking of this, what is it all worth if it all dies out? And I still think it's worth a lot. It's fun to do it now, and if the sport dies out, then fine. I think the sport's healthier than it's ever been for in different ways than it used to be. But still, like, if you want to keep this going you want to share this thing that's been really good for us with other people you have to make certain sacrifices cool anything else no i think that was like a nice package of information yeah i I wonder how much of it will translate to podcasts but hopefully people find it helpful I, i know a lot of people have been asking me lately what i do and why i'm successful making new freestylers And I guess I'll say one more time, like it could just be luck. Like it could just be random. You never know. Like there's a lot of different factors that go into it. School, orientation, freshmen, young people, whatever. Not everyone has that. But the best you can do is do as many right things as you can and hope that you have enough of them that it works. Yeah. And if you want to talk about spreading the jam and you haven't given away a disc in the last six months, I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) All right, cool. Well, with that, uh, write us at clockercounter at gmail.com. Check out the website, clockercounter.com. We also have some whiz rings. Not really for sale, but if you see us, get a clocker counter whiz ring. They're pretty cool. And with that, we'll talk to you next week.